I think of it as emotional compound interest. The beautiful thing with investing is that over time, it gains on itself. It's like yeast rising in the sun. It gets bigger and bigger in all directions. Mm -hmm. It's the same with life, creativity, enjoyment, artistic career pursuits. They grow in proportion to how you feed them. Welcome to episode 25 of Find Your Light, the podcast that helps women plus in theater take center stage in lives they love. I am your host, Emily Stamets, back after a bit of a hiatus, and I'm so, so excited to share the conversation that we've got today. Um, Today, I'm talking with Rihanna Basor, who is an award-winning actress, director, and writer. She's been performing professionally for over 20 years in stage, film, and TV in the U.S. and abroad. Um, She's a content creator, a director-producer. Her work includes Crapshoot, which is scheduled to headline the 2020 Marfa Fringe and will also be featured at the Reykjavik Fringe in July. She also, this is super cool, she works as a like a money mindset coach for artists and especially theater makers. So she helps us to um, do better creative work by building a better relationship with money. So we talk a little bit about finances, just FYI, content warning, we talk about money in this podcast. So be ready for that. Alrighty, without any further ado, here is Rihanna Basor. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Um, thank you for your time and for sharing your energy. Um, I'm really excited to especially share what you um, do with around money with artists. Yeah. So it's going to be super great. Where do we start? I mean, we're both in San Diego. That's a cool thing. Um, I know. What a small world. It is. Uh, and I mean, I talked to so many people who are like, I talked to a lot of people that are in Atlanta, which is really interesting oh. to me. Um, and of course, New York, you know, <laughs> yeah. of course. Yep. <laughs> and actually I've been talking recently, this is also weird. Um, but recently I've been talking to a lot of people who are in Alaska. Oh, fascinating. Right. There's like a really strong theater scene in Alaska. Um, I think it's growing. What I, what I know is that it, there's a, a very active like community theater scene in particular. Um, and that uh-huh. like, I think the professional scene is also growing. I don't know. I just think that's really cool. Like an anchorage. Neat. <laughs> yes. I think that's so cool because the one thing theater needs is space. And that's definitely what uh-huh. they have in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> that is really, that is a great point. When I think about like being in LA, um, I was like in LA for many years and now San Diego. It's true. Like we did the, some weird, we did theater in some weird places in Los Angeles. Like really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did like, theater in a car with a company from <gasps> LA. <laughs> did you really? What was, oh my God. Wait, tell me about that. Or is that, wait, uh, yeah. Tell me about that. I want to know about that. Yeah, it was called The Car Place, and the the company came down from L.A. They were based out of the La Jolla Playhouse for their WOW Festival, and they lined up, I think it was five sets of cars, and the plays were 10 minutes each, and then they had one minute to get into the next car, and it was audiences of two. Oh, my gosh. (gasps) It is the most intimate theater I have ever experienced, and people loved it. It's sold out weeks in advance. 
Um, okay. I've, I, I have so many questions. Um, what was, <laughs> okay, cool. Um, what, wait, wait, wait. So were, were the actors always in the front seats or were they in different seats sometimes? They were in different seats sometimes. And sometimes the actor or actors didn't start in the car. Like <gasps> maybe the car was empty and one or both, sometimes three actors would approach the car at different points and have an, a, an interaction. Wow. We, and how, and many, such how many different scenes Creative was it? stories. Um, usually most shows were two. Sometimes it was one and there was even one, I think had three. Wow. That like blows my mind. It was so cool. And it, it was like the perfect combination of the intimacy of film acting, but also like being able, the muscularity of the space and being able to repeat it five times in an hour and so it was very theatrical in that way it was and you know the audiences were just sometimes they got talked to sometimes they were flies on the wall sometimes Mm -hmm. it was dangerous sometimes it was funny like the audience brought their own energy to it that also kept us on our toes it was a very exciting project that is so cool oh my gosh I wish I had known when was that um I think we did it for a couple of years I think the first one might have been 2014 maybe hi oh my god that is amazing if it it ever comes back and if you're a part of it and you know about it let me know because uh that's definitely something I would like to see yeah I would love to have you come that would be amazing one of my um one of my master's design projects was scenic design for arsenic and old lace which is totally irrelevant to the story but um there (laughs) Like they were like, you, there are no limits. Like you have all of the money, all of the time in the world design. Like what is the dream set? And I was like, awesome. And I built like a self-contained living room or I designed, I didn't actually build it. Um, a self-contained living room on my stage. Um, and my professor was like, how are you going to get an audience in, in here? And I was like, my audience is like six to eight people. So, uh, that, because I have no, I I don't care what my ticket sales are like, cause they have an unlimited Cause I'm like, so, um, I love the idea of like, I mean, I love immersive theater, but I love the idea of like taking real life situations. Like what happens when you're in a living room with these things going yes. on like, in a car when these, you know, and you're like part of this theatrical experience in a very real, very, very, um, visceral and like realistic way. Oh, I think it's so cool. Absolutely. And I think it's things like that, that are really making theater in the common era, right? Like people, I was just talking about this yesterday. They want to feel special. And so doing those more immersive right in the midst of it, that's something you can't get watching on Netflix or even going to the movies. And so theater continues to excite and energize audiences in these ways by giving them more and more authenticity and exactly that way. I love that design idea. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so now I'm like, I wonder if anyone has done, has like done studies about, um, like as the millennial, I don't know how old you are, but as millennials sort of come in and become our paying theater audience, what did they want that is different from, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, um, and, and like older people and how do we make theater that is exciting for them and that does attract them? Because I think you're right. Like I think in the era of I can sit on my couch 
in my pajamas and eat like a salami if I want to uh, <laughs> and watch almost anything that has ever been created for as right. long as I want to. Like what is actually going to get me to the theater? What's going to get me to pay more than my $7 Netflix account um, and actually like get me off my butt and wearing real clothes and like into a place yeah. where, oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. I think it's fascinating. I just was at a show this weekend that was very much sold out, filled with, I would say, 25 to 40. Some of them were repeat attendees, and they were there for it. And I thought, see, this generation does want to go to the theater. They just don't want to be polite and sit quietly in the dark while being told a nice story done well. Like they want something different. And I'm so excited to begin to see those bubbles of opportunities that are coming to the surface through discovery. And then the audience is like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Oh, it's so exciting. I'm thinking (laughs) of a show that I saw um, in Boston um, at the, uh, Orpheus, Ophelia, the something. It's like one of their like experimental theaters that's attached to the ART. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, it was a wedding and it was, uh, it was like four and a half hours long, six hours long. Cause it was modeled after the timeline of an actual wedding. Um, and so, and it was like, we moved from like three different spaces or I guess it was the same space, but it was completely reconfigured in between each act for three different acts. Um, so that the first we were like sitting at cabaret tables. Um, and then at the end it was just like, just open space. And the actors, we like, I laid down like flat out on the ground and the actors like <laughs> their way in between all of us to do act three. It's just like, there's so many ways to, I love how you said it, like to make your each audience member feel really special. Um, and I love seeing how people are like doing that and creating with that. Oh, 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 it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rihanna, tell us the journey. How did you get started in theater? And what has that journey been like from then to now? Uh, my journey from theater starts so young. For me, it was sleepovers, backstage plays. You know, if I could rally some friends and a couple parents to watch us, I was putting on a play. Like, <laughs> that was the thing that I wanted to do with my free time. And as I grew up, um, I I tended to live in towns that were kind of smallish, like towns and smaller cities. So there wasn't like super big theater communities. So I found myself starting drama clubs and going out to the local community theater when my high school didn't really have like a strong program. And it, it started me really early going out after the opportunities that I wanted to experience. And I was lucky enough to get into the NYU undergrad program, which took me right to New York in the hustle and bustle of it all. Amazing training, amazing experience to work with seasoned professionals, working professionals to walk past people checking their voicemail on the payphone on my way to class or people skipping to go to an open call on Broadway. It was just... Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) But yeah, the world was just like my oyster in this fabulous way. Poets would come and speak and jazz musicians. It was such an alive place to be. 
And I'm just so grateful that I started my professional journey there because it really, especially in New York City and especially at NYU, it was like, what do you want to do? Do you want to build your own play and make that happen? I was sort of classically theater focused. So I did more Shakespeare, regional theater. That was more where I was focused. Other people were like straight to Broadway. Like I have a friend who was hired to be a dancer in a Broadway show the first year we were at NYU and then he went on to TV and now he's won Tony's. It's like, we just had the world in front of us and it was offered to us. So um, that was such a great jumping off point from that. And then from there, it was just a really easy transition to start hitting those backstage auditions. I booked a two-year contract right out of school, which was amazing. I I did some regional theater for a while, and then I started to tour and have international gigs. And at a certain point, I felt like I was traveling so often. I wanted a really, like, beautiful, happy home base. I sometimes found, like, the hustle and the bustle of New York was a little bit much for my creativity. It was a little overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I moved back to the West Coast where I was born and have just loved all of the experiences on the West Coast after all of that amazing training on the East Coast. Yeah. And you're primarily a performer. Is that correct? Yeah, that's my background. So I've been a professional performer since high school, essentially. I did summer Shakespeare and got my equity card that way. And it's only probably been in the last 10 or so years that I've started to do more film and TV. We have a great um, local film and TV community here in San Diego and in Southern California that's sort of separate from LA in a great way, which I've really enjoyed uh, those up and coming filmmakers and uh, more indie projects significantly. Yeah, absolutely. It is true. It's like, it's a really different um, theater scene and theater worlds down here. Um, Having come from LA myself, also down to San Diego County, um, I'm like, you know, figuring out like I have to like reestablish everything too, which is good in its own way, but also challenging. Um, Yeah, it it definitely is. Yeah, but I agree that it's it's really nice to have because it is like its own culture, even though we're just a couple hours away. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, give us a snapshot of what you do now. What are you working on? So what I do now is I have sort of two, two focuses. So one is I've started coaching financial independence for creative. Mm-hmm. I have come up through nonprofit as sort of a, a side hustle to support my creative pursuits. And in so doing, I've been honored to be trained in business development, financial accounting for nonprofit. And I realized that I had sort of intuited all of these business skills over time, but that there were actually tips and tools and strategies that were common knowledge in the business world that no one was teaching creatives. Mm-hmm. And that with, a, with very simple implementation, not dramatic, just very small tweaks or tactics or different ways of approaching things would allow creatives to build up the resources that sometimes can feel feast or famine when you're in between gigs or your side hustle is 
maybe not as steady as you'd like it to be. So I've really been loving giving back to my community through that coaching and starting to blog, create written content on that, on those topics. Yeah. And then on my creative pursuit, I have a a show going to the Marfa Fringe in January and in the Reykjavik Fringe in the summer, in July, we've been invited to participate in the Reykjavik Fringe. And it's been so exciting to tap into that content creator part of my brain as well, which is also that business leadership, driving your own career aspect that I have always been fascinated by. So cool. Um, and what is the show that you're working on and that you're taking? Sure. It's called Crapshoot, Why I Voted for Trump, A Love Story. (laughs) (laughs) It could go so many ways. So what is it? What is it about in, you know, in, you know, two minutes or less? Yeah. So it's a clowning satire of a Trump voter starting the day after the election. It's the first time he's ever voted in his life. He finally feels like he's found someone he can get behind. And instead of being the greatest day of his life, it actually turns out to be the worst day of his life. Mm -hmm. And he goes through this journey through the underworld as he discovers the repercussions of his choice, the real landscape of the American political uh, circus. And he makes us laugh and love him along the way. It has a lot of heart, a lot of big laughs, and it it has sort of a playful mischievousness. But I think it's really surprised audiences, given the title and the subject matter that has allowed it to transcend labels and connect with audiences in the way that we were really hoping that it would. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Um, so we could see that if we go to Reykjavik. Yeah, Reykjavik or the Marfa Fringe. Marfa Fringe has its first annual festival this year, Elvis's birthday, if you happen to be in town. Very cool. And they have invited us to headline. It's a one-man show that my creative collaborator has written and he stars in. And then I'm directing and producing it. Very cool. And just to, uh, for anyone who's listening, um, who's not familiar, it's Marfa, M-A-R-F-A, Fringe. Yes. Awesome. 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 Um, that sounds like such a fantastic show. <laughs> um, I'm not planning to go but if I were going, I would see your show. Well, I appreciate that. We actually made a short film based off of it last spring, which we're hoping to expand into something of a longer length. So if we ever do, I'll be sure to send it to you. Yes, please do. I would love to see it. Um, Awesome. All right, Ariel. Oh my gosh, we're just like blowing through all of these questions. Um, Nice job being succinct. Um, Tell us a vivid memory that you have of the theater. Well. The way that I got my union card was I was interning at a summer Shakespeare festival as as obviously was an intern. And I was working backstage, one of like 16 different interns. And one of the lead actresses got in a fight with one of the other actresses and she walked off the production. 
Oh my gosh. About 20 minutes before curtain. Mm-hmm. And the stage manager had seen like our little intern children's show. And I played some kind of like crazy humorous character. I don't even remember anymore. And he said, I would like you to take over this part. I've seen you in the intern production. I think you can do it. And I was like, uh, okay. So they outfitted me in somebody's leftover costume that hadn't made it into the final production, gave me the book in hand and sent me on stage. And at the end of the night, they said, you know what? It really worked out well. We're going to give you the rest of her scenes to learn. And you're now in the show. Wow. That's That was my first professional credit. Yeah, it was an amazing opportunity. So how old were you at that point? I was 16. Mm Mm-hmm. Were you like, what was the experience like? Were you terrified? Were you excited? <laughs> well, I think there's, it's, I would say I was thrilled. You know, when you're on a roller coaster and you have that excitement in your belly, but you're also a little bit like, oh no, I don't know what's going to happen. You're yes. right on the edge of it. It was that feeling. Oh, that's awesome. It, they sort of launched me onto the stage. Mm-hmm. Of course, everyone in the production was so supportive and amazing, talking me through it, having my back, gesturing where I should go. Because, of course, after I had done my lines, I turned around and I looked at them and it was like, I have to get off the stage now. And they guided me off the stage like the absolute sweethearts that they are. Are you still friends with anyone who was in that show? I'm not. Every once in a while, I'll see a name pop up. Like I saw one of the ladies was understudying a Broadway show I saw a couple of years ago. But, you know, this was pre-social media days. So no, we're not still in touch. Yeah, it's so hard to stay in touch sometimes. Um, What's the most important lesson that you've learned in the theater? Flexibility. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that... In, in all of my pursuits, the number one thing that I have learned is to listen deeply, adapt quickly, and work from myself in order to solve the problems that I'm presented. And the flexibility that that has given me has really allowed me to shine in a lot of things that I have supported or been pursuing. And I think it's something that's very hard to teach. And... Coming up, especially as a theater performer for so many years, you know, you show up and the lighting isn't rigged yet and the set's not up and people grab a hammer and they help. Somebody's not on book or they can't get their accent. Everyone's pitching in backstage to help. And so it creates a real team mentality that I think has served me in all of my pursuits. Yeah. Um, how How has that helped you in the financial side, like the nonprofit financial work you've been doing, and then as a business owner now? Well, I think the biggest thing is is listening to what people need help with, especially as a coach and also in nonprofit too, because nonprofit are like very much like artists. They come from their heart. We have this mission. We want to share it with the world. We don't know how to do it. And so that ability to listen deeply and then come up with actionable solutions has really helped to provide the support that my creatives need when it comes to scary things like money, when I need to inspire nonprofits to take action in ways that perhaps 
feels overwhelming because of all the work they're already doing and that they're understaffed. Mm-hmm. I think also with my theater background, I was able to see like, okay, these things are not serving us. So let's let go of these things. So mm-hmm. often we we leave these ghosts of responsibilities, right? Like maybe in the theater, it's old blocking or cut lines or ideas about the character that just aren't working in this production. And we hold on to them. They're like little rocks in our backpack. And we do that in life too, right? And we, um, we still have these ghost charges on our account, even though we don't listen to Spotify anymore. Or <laughs> we, we pay into a life insurance plan that doesn't represent where we are in our expenses. Or we have these ghost savings accounts all over the place instead of in one location where all of our money is. Mm-hmm. And by being able to focus on the things that aren't working and encouraging people to let those go and release them, what you end up with is this really tight model for them to move forward with action. As a director, I say, okay, release that choice. And over time, hopefully they do. It's the same in coaching. It's the same in nonprofit. Relieving people of the burdens of what isn't working, I think, is just such a time-saving gift that eventually does turn into money as well. Yeah, I love that. I'm um, uh, in the middle of a teaching artist position right now where I'm doing playwriting with high school mm-hmm. students. Um, and... I feel like if I can if I can have them walk away with the lesson that you have to get something down on paper, it's probably not going to stay there. <laughs> like if, yes. if we can say, I'm like, just write something down. We're gonna cut half of it anyways. Like it, it's okay right. if it's bad. It's supposed to be bad at first because it's mostly just gonna go away because we get rid of everything. Like you say, like we're getting rid of everything that doesn't serve the story. We're getting rid of everything that doesn't serve. Um, our lives so that we can have like yeah. a nice little like tight, neat production of a world that we live in. Which is great. Yes. And the, the failure to begin is such, is, I really think in so many ways, emotionally and also financially, something that really holds people back. It's like, we want to do it right, right out of the gate perfectly, but really an 80% effort results in action, which leads to results, but planning or putting things off or perfectionism leads to zero. And we're so afraid of it not being that extra 20% of perfect that we end up with zero. And it makes me laugh when I catch myself doing it because I'm as guilty as anyone. Mm -hmm. But just beginning, just putting structures in place, just getting words on a paper, just opening a savings account, all of these these actions result in the things that we want. It's just that it's not perfect. And that can be so challenging sometimes. It can be, but I mean, you know, we are as people of theater, like my whole thesis of this podcast is that as theater people, we have skills to live life better than anyone else yes. in the world. Um, oh, <laughs> and I just- yeah great lives because clearly they, they can, but we have the skill and the knowledge and the habit of, rehearsing and yeah. cleaning up and refining. Um, I think we just forget sometimes that we can also do that 
in our day to day. Um, right. Like it's okay to like do something really awful the first time because you're gonna be able to practice it. You're going to be able to do it again and again and make it better and better each time. Absolutely. The ability to take a risk is really profound. It's one of the things in business I've noticed is that there can be a very safe mindset. And then you bring in a creative, especially a theater person who you you are just living your fullest life in front of people. There is only risk in that. And they're willing to just jump right in. There's a fearlessness that comes about that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Last night, my acting teacher said, what's the worst that happens? You're bad in acting class. It's not that bad. Yeah. Yep. There's definitely worse things that happen in the world, like all the time, every day. Um, we might as well just, you know, do this stupid things when we're in the safe place. I love it. Yes. Yes. And (laughs) also that, um, one of the things I'm realizing in my own writing and content creation is there are things we download or channel that we are not aware are coming. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I am really coming into owning as an artist creator is the fact that I don't need to plan things out all the time. Mm. Sometimes I just need to write them down or do them or take action or make a decision because we spend so much time training our instincts to be so razor sharp and so aware of everything that's going on and processing a lot of information at very high levels that that your instincts are there for it. They know what's best. It's just that our head wants to be in on the game and we second guess ourselves. But if we let that true instinct go, most of the time we're really served by it. Yeah, absolutely. Can you think of an example? Well, I can. So the first time I wrote a grant, it was one at my nonprofit Um, to support this high school training program I was helping them build. And the gentleman who was the president of the organization said to me, it's a big government grant. It's like 60 pages. It's going to be the end of January. Keep your eye out for it. Okay, great. So the end of January comes and I'm thinking about it. and like, oh, I should look that up because the thing with government grants is they don't release the application until the window is open. And then the window is like two or three weeks. It's very fast. Right. And it was maybe like 2.30 in the afternoon. I kid you not, it was due that day at 5 o'clock. Oh my God, the government is the worst. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. And so I'm sitting there, you know, honing my deep breathing skills, having come from so many years of panicking on the stage, but having to stay present. I said, okay, Rihanna, you have two options. You can either say to the president, we missed it this year. Let's put it on the calendar for next year. Or you can see what you can do. See how much of the 60-page grant you can get done before 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. I'd never written a grant before. It was going to be a brand new collaborative, collaborative effort between he and me. <laughs> so I get working away. I give him a heads up. This is what we're doing. He's like, all right, good luck. You know, it's all you can do is try. I was like, basically, yes. I'm phoning up the financial officer, asking her how to download reports from the financial database, the whole shebang. I submitted that grant at 4.57. Amazing. And two months later, it was fully funded by the government. Ah, that's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. 
I love it. Um, I wonder, I don't know. There's so much, I have so many questions about that. I wish I could be like a fly on the wall in that government office. Was everyone in that position? Like how many other companies got, you know, sort of noticed that this grant was up at the last minute like that? I'm so curious. I know me too. I, I then became later friends with the grant officers and their lovely supportive humans, but I have no idea what the other experience was. I have kept an eye on that grant since then, and they moved the window up every year by three to four weeks. So I have learned my lesson. Check the website regularly and early. (laughs) That's like a full, it's kind of like a full-time job is like, you need someone who their job is they come in every day and like, just check all of the grant websites. (laughs) Like that's the first thing you do when you walk in the office is check every single website of every single grant that we apply to. Yeah, never- I think that is a very good plan. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I'm trying to implement in my own business is starting the morning the morning with relationship building. So reaching out to the contacts I want to be in touch with, mm-hmm. doing the social media posts that need to happen. If I start from a place of communication and connection, it allows the rest of my day to flower from there because we're such a relationship-based business. It's yeah. about connecting with people. And if you start your day with that, I think it really informs the actions you take the rest of the day. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like, um, it's setting your intention, but it's setting it through action and making the first actions you take in the, in the day, like be your intention. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, all right, Rihanna, what is a challenge that you're facing right now? Hmm. That's a good question. I feel in a really happy space now. So nothing's exactly jumping to mind, but there's always challenges for sure. I think one of my biggest ones at the moment is I have the biggest case of FOMO. I am always like, I want to write that book and I want to, you know, I want to work on my TED talk and I want to work on my book and I want to audition for these plays. And so really finding the right amount of energy and the scheduling for all the things that I want to approach is I think my biggest challenge now as theater people. So often we work our, our side hustle job. Then we go to the theater. Maybe we get a good night's sleep. Maybe we get to the grocery store. Maybe our laundry gets done, but more and more I am coming to a place where I know that I am my best self. If my self-care comes first, Mm -hmm. But I have to balance that with all of my pursuits. So how can I take amazing care of myself while also feeding all of my passions that I am chasing at full bore, no holds barred? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's something that is faced by... all. I, I think that theater people are... Um, we tend to be multi-passionate humans. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I think, why we're drawn to theater, because in the theater, you're never just doing one thing. You're never just painting a set. You are always doing like many, many different things that lead into one big, beautiful, synthesized thing, hopefully. Um, and so I think that that's a tension felt by a lot of theater artists that I talk to, that we have, there's so many ideas and we have to, I mean, like we were talking about earlier, we have to cut some of them, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, How do you, um, one of the things that I do with my life coaching clients is 
we we draft a director's vision for everyone's life, just exactly how you would do if you were doing a show. You want to say, this is what the show is about. Like, this is the, the main story we're telling. Here's how each of the subplots like leads into that. Here's how the setting supports that. Um, and making sure that each element, uh, like you do in a play, each element is supporting the same story and the same message. But we can do that with our lives as well. And it makes making those decisions um, much much easier. It doesn't make them go away, but it's much easier to ask yourself, okay, like I, here's, here's my seven different options for how I spend today or how I spend this week or this month. Um, I've got a book, I've got conferences, I've got, um, you know, you have your, uh, like the shows you're working on, you've got all the different things. Um, and then asking yourself, great, which one of these is the strongest match for the vision that I have for my life, for my director's vision? Um, Mm. There's a lot more that go. I mean, you know, obviously some things are more urgent and need to get done earlier. Some things are uh, more important and need, you know, a little bit more energy over a longer time. Um, but I think that when for a, for most people that I've worked with, when we really sit down and like have a very specific director's vision for the for our lives, then um, all of a sudden we can look at that and just like the decisions kind of fall into place, and it becomes a lot easier to decide where to put your energy in any given moment which is pretty great. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And I love that it comes from a place of vision as opposed to sometimes like plan or even roadmap for me can feel a bit heavy in the dirt. Mm -hmm. But for me, vision has this amazing ability of like, I see something and we're headed in that way. This is what we're building towards. But I just think it's such a beautiful idea. Yeah. And it's what I like about it too, is it, it lets it lets like creative possibilities still happen. I think mm-hmm. if you have a plan or you have a roadmap, they're they're much more um, restrictive feeling. Of course, like you can always change your path, no matter what you call it. Um, but I think when we're like, this is this is the vision I have. Like this is the story I want to tell. Um, this is the feeling I want to evoke with my life. Um, there's a lot more room for new opportunities to show up and for us to follow the new paths that that come up for us. Um, it's also just more fun. Like it's way more fun to make a vision board for your director's vision than it is to make a vision board for like a plan. <laughs> yeah. Agree. Agree. You might as well like, make the creative <laughs> fun choice. I think if you can choose, you might as well. <laughs> um, we've kind of already touched on this, but I think let, let's like see if we can really narrow it down and get a specific answer. Um, what is something you do in your theatrical work? that if everyone applied the same idea or technique to their lives, they would have a better life. And for you in particular, I'm curious to know, like what is a theatrical technique that you might have or that like we might generally have um, that we could apply to our financial lives? Mm, Okay. Let me think about that. I think the technique that I would suggest is personalization. One of the things that I'm loving right now is naming your account. So for instance, I want to do a research project for a play in Morocco. Mm. And so I've named one of my accounts Morocco Dream Play. Awesome. And It's just like when in the theater, we say, all right, I have this scene with a man playing my husband, but I don't really know him. I just met him yesterday. So instead, I'm going to think about my actual partner and apply those 
feelings and those emotions onto him. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, we take an account, which is money's numbers. It's exciting when it grows. It's sad when it's depleting, unless it's something that's really good. But for the most part, it doesn't evoke emotion. Mm-hmm. And this activates it into being something that feels like a character. It generates a response from you within your body. And that energizes you to continue to feed into it to create that vision that you're imagining in your head and knowing you're drawing closer to it. So yeah. I would say personalizing your money uh, on its path, whether that's accounts or goals or how you spend it. One of the things I'm experimenting right now are the different kinds of budgets. Traditionally, more of a a structured business model is I can spend this much on food. I can spend this much on travel, this much on books. That never works for me. First of all, I always buy too many books. I will always buy too many books. (laughs) It's just going to (laughs) happen. So instead I'm working with a more flexible approach in which each of these pots of money has its own character. So I have something I call the fun money and that's the money I can spend on things that feel fun right? And then there's the things that feel safe. That's rent, that's food, that's health insurance, the things that maybe could feel draining and like a responsibility, but because I've personalized them and every time I go to write that check or make sure I haven't overspent in that particular area of my life, I think about my beautiful bed that makes me feel safe, the beautiful tree outside of my window, how delicious the food is that I buy and prepare for myself. Mm -hmm. And so I move past the challenge of those black and white dollars and cents numbers into the experience of what the money gives me. And then it feels much more joyful, much more rewarding. And I think it takes money into a place where we're having an energy exchange like I do on stage with my scene partner, as opposed to just being something that I give away. I work hard and then I send it away. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much because it's, um, uh, I, again, like I've I, in this like teaching playwriting with these high school kids right now, um, the thing that I, that like another really big thing that we're working on is that your character always has an intangible desire and the things Mm -hmm. want are just how that specific desire is manifesting in this character's specific life on this day. Um, so like, you know, a character who wants power, there's like 18,000 different ways to get power. Right. Um, so I love that you're connecting like your money, this like very, it's also intangible, right. It's an energy exchange, but right. It's a very, um, like it's a quantifiable thing, um, but you're attaching it to those intangible, deep down desires that you have. That is brilliant. It's so great. Mm-hmm. And that's something yeah, I've... I... Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say, I think especially for creatives and theater people, we tend to see money as the enemy mm-hmm. instead of it being something that serves us. Mm-hmm. And if we were better able to use our money as the superpower that it is that buys us freedom, access to the projects that we want to work on, free time with our families, the ability to pursue that trip we've always wanted to do, a lack of fear in our lives because we know we'll be okay no matter what happens, then it becomes like a co-creator with us. Yeah, and absolutely. by releasing that 
fear and that um, sense of being in opposition, it just really transforms everything. I think it's oh, so yeah. powerful. Well, I mean, if you, when you think about it, um, when <laughs> theater people are like, there's never enough money to do theater, but then right. we it like it's the bad guy. So of course right. you don't have enough money in your life to do the theater you want to do because for you, money is the enemy. So you're never like right. in, in, you aren't like being open to it and welcoming to it because you think it's, it's like your antagonist. So we have to flip that right. script. And, um, and make it like, you know, do all of the tricks, like everything that you just said to make it something that we really want to have in our lives. So you don't have that yeah. negative energy attached to it. Oh my gosh. It's so brilliant. I love it so much. <laughs> um, a thing that, uh, that also came up for me when you were talking about personalizing your accounts is, um, I, I hosted a, a wardrobe revival program where we took a costume design approach to the clothes in our closet, like our daily um, outfits. And one of the Mm -hmm. things that worked really well for the clients that were in that program was instead of organizing our clothes by like, my pants go here, my shirts go here, my underwear go there. Instead it was, here are my, um, like, here are my safe clothes, right? Here's like my cozy clothes. Here are my badass clothes. And so we really Mm -hmm. sort of organized our clothing and created... Um, almost like uh, capsule wardrobes, but based around all of the different roles that we play in our lives or the way that we needed to feel on particular days. You know, sometimes you wake up, you're like, oh, I have this big presentation. I need to feel confident or, you know, smart or whatever. So you want to wake up and be like, I'm going to go to the confident area of my wardrobe and put on my confident clothes, or I'm going to go to the smart area of my closet and put on my smart clothes so that you can really start to embody and like dress like the, the different, um, character attributes that you need to portray each day. Absolutely. It's like a mood board that you actually own. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And that you put on yes, your body, I had, which is fun. Right. And, and I had a, a coworker once and she said, I always know who you're going to be that day by how you dress, which uh-huh. is exactly what you're talking about. We put on personas for the stage and yet superheroes have costumes to go and save the world. Why wouldn't creatives have that? Yeah. And so what I'm thinking about too is like, what if, like it's kind of a a game you could play with your money where it's like, great. So you have all these like uh, categories, you have your fun money, your safe money, like all those different um, like personalized, characterized um, accounts um, or line items, however you do it. And then, um, what if each month you gave yourself like $20, $50, whatever to put into the account that you chose for that month? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you have these budget items, like you're like, okay, well every month, like specific amounts of money go into each of these specific accounts. But then I also have this money that I'm empowered to add to an account, um, based on what I feel like I need and where I want to build on this particular day. Yeah. Because yeah, I it's like uh, investing in an emotion, right? You're investing in your own emotion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Because then you get to choose like, what do I, like this month, what do I need a little bit more of? <laughs> I need a little more fun or I need a little more safety. Um, and you can really like choose where to, to build in those different places. Well, and I love that because then it becomes about how can I treat myself as mm-hmm. my own patron, because especially theater people, because we're always out hustling for our jobs, we mm-hmm. have this sense of, I wait for my needs to be met. 
And so shifting that mentality to I meet my own needs and not only my bottom line needs like house and shelter, but also my inner child. Maybe I need paints this month or maybe next month I really need like really beautiful pillows for my bed. And Mm -hmm. in that way, you become your own artistic patron like they used to have, you know, 300 years ago for painters. You Mm -hmm. don't need someone else to fund your art. You fund your own well-being. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's so empowering. Amazing. A great idea. Yeah. yeah. Add it to the list. <laughs> Change <laughs> lives. Done. One podcast at a time. All right. Should theater be universally accessible life curriculum? I mean, I think yes. I think that the skill set that theater introduces is the thing that's missing in, in society. Honestly, that's what I believe. Empathy, communication, connection, flexibility, the ability to process information in the moment and respond in, in a pure way. These are all the skills I think that our society has deprioritized for more external things like grades and jobs and houses and cars. But as a result, there's a loneliness and there's a lack of togetherness that I hear in our culture that is all the skill sets that theater provides. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so even at the most basic level, giving children skills that then they can take out into the world or adults that will help them refine how they move through the world now will only increase how connected, how, how we work together to move our society forward in amazing ways. Like that will only benefit. So I, I do think it actually is something that needs to be reintroduced as a life skill curriculum. Mm-hmm. Agreed. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Brianna, here's our last question. Um, this is your chance to plant a seed in the hearts, minds, spirits, or all three of the people who are listening today. I would like to plant the seed that it is possible to pursue the things that you want the passions, the projects, the lifestyle that theater people and creatives long for in their hearts and fear that they are never going to have. There are ways to become your own patron, fund your own dreams, and live the lifestyle that you're seeking through skill sets that you already have. It's just a matter of gaining some new tips and tools that will empower you to grow not only your money, but your artistic career and your life in these exponential ways that money can reflect in the way that it grows. I think of it as emotional compound interest. The beautiful thing with investing is that over time, it gains on itself. It's like yeast rising in the sun. It gets bigger and bigger in all directions. Mm -hmm. It's the same with life, creativity, enjoyment, artistic career pursuits. They grow in proportion to how you feed them. 
And mm-hmm. I would like to offer the seed that it is possible to do that for theater people and creative people in a powerful way. Yeah. I would argue even that it is necessary because yeah. when we grow financially, um, I mean, in any area of our lives, when we grow in our relationships, when we grow um, in our bank accounts, when we grow in our learning and education or our personal growth, that engenders further growth in artistry. And we, we cannot become better artists if we are starving or lonely or um, suffering, right? Like it is, it's from a place of safety and a place of um, knowing that you're going to be okay, that we can really start to reach for transcendence in our work. Um, yes. So I think a lot of people try, they, they try, like we have this ridiculous fallacy that if I want to be an artist, I have to give up a life of financial abundance but the opposite is actually true. The more I was, I'm, I've been listening to this Dolly Parton podcast. Highly recommend it. Um, but it sounds I, amazing. It's so good. Um, it's Jada Boomrod who did who does Radio Lab too. Um, but he, but like thinking about like Dolly Parton who has more money than God, right? Um, but she with what because she has that abundance, she is able to create and and do things that do basically whatever the fuck she wants to do because she's, because she doesn't have to worry about paying rent. So it's like the financial abundance that allows her to be a greater artist. Um, and I think we can see examples of that across the board. And I think we see more examples of that where financial abundance and all of the, like abundance of love and abundance of all of the other things, um, leads into greater freedom and greater creativity as an artist as well. Yes, I think the starving artist mentality actually holds artists back to wait for permission, both in terms of their money and also in terms of what they creatively offer. How much more rich and exciting would be the creative output of theater makers or the other artists in our community if you knew you didn't have to have that job, if you knew you didn't have to have a side hustle, if you knew you could take care of yourself in a way that made you feel like you can show up as a creative collaborator to whatever the gig or the opportunity is and be your fullest self because Mm -hmm. everything else is taken care of. I think that in some ways artists tie themselves in knots by not taking good care of themselves. But if you were able to unkink all of those fears and responsibilities and just be present in your full creative self, that is where your talent deserves to live because that would shine brighter than anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Can we, I know I said that was our last question, but um, I'm also really curious to hear your thoughts this question came up for me when we were just like right at the beginning of our conversation today, um, thinking about how, excuse me, how actors are taught, like we're taught to be like artists, right? Like theater makers are taught to be creative. We're taught to be, um, you know, to like tell stories and do all these beautiful things. But then we're sort of sent off into the world to be our own one person businesses. And we're not really taught I mean, some programs do teach entrepreneurship, which I think is great. I don't think that we're doing it at the level that um, that freelance theater makers really need. So I'm just curious your yeah. thoughts on that. Like, what is it? What does it mean to be like a one person business slash artist? Right. 
Well, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is that as a theater maker slash creative slash artist in our culture, you are an entrepreneur. Full mm-hmm. stop. You run a one-person business. Whether you see yourself as a craftsperson, as a maker, as a visionary, as a hired hand, whatever it is, you do not have one boss who pays you a steady income that gives you a 401k that um, has health insurance. You are continuing to go out and offer your talents as resources to the marketplace. And if you don't know how to sell your talents, if you don't know how to market your talents, if you don't know how to take care of the income for your business, if you don't know how to have the vision to drive your career forward, you are you are vulnerable to mm-hmm. the vacillations of whoever you cross paths with. Mm-hmm. So maybe you meet the right person who sees what it is and you have that team in place through other efforts that create something for you. I definitely have friends that that has worked out for them. And then there's other people who have that business mind right out of the gate. They put mm-hmm. it all together, they build their own team and they drive their own careers. And I have other friends who have all of those multi-passionate pursuits and they've created their own sort of hybrid creative career. When I was coming out of NYU, they did not teach entrepreneur skills. In fact, Mm -hmm. my dad said to me, you should take business. Stern business is so good. And I was like, dad, don't be crazy. I'm an artist. Here (laughs) I am all these years later. And my dad was a genius because Mm -hmm. without business skills, you do not have the power behind your creative skills to stand out in the marketplace. You are a victim to opportunity and whatever might happen to you. You are not driving the engine of your career. And that just means that your artistry is not reaching the people who want to pay you good money for it. Mm -hmm. And I think that our artists are our greatest untapped resource. And I want to empower them to get out there, share their skills, and profit by it because that's how they get to make better stuff to make our world better. It really matters to me. And it does not serve us to have artists playing small. If artists have a sense of their own contribution, their own direct access to being paid for their talents, I think we would have a whole new atmosphere of artistry in this country. Mm -hmm. And I'm fighting for that, my friend. Absolutely. So what's the first step? For someone who's listening today and they're like, oh my gosh, Rihanna is blowing my mind. I have all of these thoughts. Where do I start? Well, they're welcome to check out my website, selftrustfund.com. Yes. Say it again. Selftrustfund.com. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that you can build yourself your own trust fund and then mm-hmm. you'll be able to trust yourself financially. I love and it. so. Isn't that fun? I know. Yeah. So I have a little bite-sized offer they can grab. It's a 90-minute intensive. We'll chat on the phone. We'll really get to the root of things. Take away three strong action items for them to really knock out of the park and get their legs under them financially. And then two weeks later, I'll follow up. We can check in with how things are going, do any sort of fine-tuning that needs to happen. And then from there, it's really sort of self self-propelled. Some people want to check in every once in a while. We can do like quarterly one-on-one calls. Other people, I have a client we talk every week. It's really up to them. Mm -hmm. Cool. And as I mentioned before, I'll be rolling out some 
writing financial blog content. So that will be available on my website as well very soon. That's so exciting. Um, Awesome. Well, that leads us perfectly into the very final question, which is if anyone listening today wants to work with you, it sounds like going to your website and getting that 90 minute consultation is the right way to go. Yeah, it really is the best way for them to get to know me, me to get to know them and how best we can work together while Mm -hmm. also getting into that like first workshop rehearsal feeling that let's get into the muck and figure out what this is about so we can start building into what it can be, right? Mm -hmm. That just really down and dirty communication in order to start to create the magic that's possible. So exciting. Well, Rihanna, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the work that you're doing in this world to empower artists um, and theater makers financially. It's hugely important. Um, best of luck and many broken legs in at all of the French festivals that you're doing with your show. That's super exciting. Um, and I hope that we can, get, I mean, we're so close to each other. I hope that we can get coffee soon. Oh, I would love that. Please let me know. I'll let you know when I'm up in your <laughs> neck of the wood because it it is too amazing not to connect in person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, leave a rating, and tell your friends about this podcast so that they can subscribe too. If you would like to follow us on social media, you can do that at FYL Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or at Find Your Light Podcast on Facebook. You can email suggestions or nominations at any time to podcast at emilystamets.com. That's all for today. Until next time, stand confidently center stage and enjoy your show.